Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. They show you everything you need to know to find and fix errors in your applications. Don't rely on your customers to report your errors. That's not the way you do it. Use Sentry. You can start tracking your errors today for free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, Node frameworks like Express and Koa, and many, many other languages. That's just JavaScript I mentioned. View actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps. You can even prompt your users for feedback when front end errors happen, so you can compare their experience to the actual data. At thechangelaw.com slash century, start tracking your errors today for free. No credit cards required. Once again, changelaw.com slash century. Tell them Adam from the Changelaw sent you, and now onto the show. You're listening to The Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. In this episode, we talk with Gerhard Lazou about the infrastructure behind Changelog.com and how we deploy. If you're just catching up, we relaunched our new brand and new site on Phoenix and Elixir October 2016, and we needed a better way to reliably host and deploy the site. That's where Gerhard came in and we go over all the details and decisions in this show. All right, we're back today talking about the changelog.com infrastructure. Jerry, when we roll out this new site, one of the things we wanted to do was have continuous integration, continuous deployment, and a whole new infrastructure on Linode and a bunch of servers. And we recruited somebody that's super awesome, and they're here to tell us about the backstory basically of like the right. last several months of like how we deploy. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Gerhard Lazuz with us. Gerhard is very much the man behind the scenes, behind the curtains, so to speak, oh, yeah. of our new infrastructure. And uh, the reason that is, it goes back a few years actually. So Gerhard, we met in 2014. Gerhard, I'm not sure exactly how we met you. I'm sure it was on the internet, but you actually blogged for Changelog.com back in the day, all about Ansible and Docker. And that was our very first time meeting you. Do you, do you recall that situation? Yeah, I remember that actually really, really well. Um, I remember when Docker first came out, and not many people have heard of Docker, but everyone was getting excited because it was solving a tough problem, the problem of dependencies and the problem of uh, reproducible builds um, right. and runtimes. And Ansible was something really, really interesting, and it had a lot more um, in common with uh, my approaches, my prior approaches, than than anything um, than than Docker itself, uh, specifically. And I think that's how you actually came across um, just my name again um, yeah. in the context of the new changelog and Erlang applications. I've built this deployment tool called Deliver, very aptly named. And uh, Deliver was just a, a bash script, really, um, a fairly complicated bash script, which at the time was meant to re- replace Capistrano. And I think for our real Ruby listeners, uh, they will know um, the deployment tool, which maybe is still the case today. I don't know. I haven't really 
watch that space too closely. Uh, right. But Capistrano inspired me to build Deliver, which was later used for airline deployment, and some users might know it as eDeliver. And since the new changelog application was Elixir and was Erlang-based, eDeliver right. was mentioned even, I think, on the Phoenix blog as a deployment tool for Phoenix. Absolutely. Let me stop you right there and I'll add some color to that situation. So uh, as many of you know, we did a complete rewrite of the changelog.com website and CMS last year in Elixir and Phoenix. We have shows about that, a couple shows last year, Adam, on Elixir and Phoenix, where we get a little bit of information about the backstory around that. But uh, when it came time to actually deploy that application, um, I was very much green, a novice. Uh, my background is very much uh, not DevOps. So uh, back when we used to call ourselves sysadmins, like I was a network administrator and a server maintainer, uh, a system administrator back in the day. And so I'm very comfortable with the command line. I'm very comfortable with uh, dealing with servers. I've deployed many LAMP stacks. I've deployed many Rails apps. I've deployed mail servers and relays and stuff like that. But uh, when it came time to take our shiny new application and get it out there for everybody to use, I didn't know what the best practices were. So I went searching. I may have actually found eDeliver Gerhard on the Phoenix website, but there were a handful of tools at the time. This is about June of 2015. Could that be right? No, 2016. Last year, yeah. This was June, July of 2016. And I found eDeliver as you said, and it seemed to be best of breed at the time. I'm not sure if it is anymore uh, for deploying Erlang applications. And when I found that, uh, it was based on Deliver, as you said, and on Deliver, I found your avatar. And I recognized your avatar because you had blogged back in 2014 uh, for us about Ansible and Docker. And I thought, you know who'd be a lot better at this than I am? Uh, Probably with the guy who wrote the tool that everybody's (laughs) using, I didn't realize at the time that eDeliver was based on Deliver, but you weren't like actively a part of that project, or maybe you were for a little while. You had some commits, and so I thought you were working on eDeliver, but it turns out that was just based on your project. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. eDeliver was actually fork of Deliver, but the ideas which it had, the ideas about SSHing into multiple hosts in parallel and running commands, and all that, that was actually one of the core fundamentals uh, of Ansible. Right. And that's why I kept joking how Ansible was like something that Deliver could never be because it had the community behind and it was later sold to Red Hat for like 100 million. So I missed that boat. That made <laughs> Deliver a lot more popular. Um, And then maybe I would have sold it for like 100 million. But the point is that the principles which Ansible was based on were were these really simple uh, approaches, right? Just like to managing hosts. And that's the thing which attracted me. And I realized how Ansible was like a natural continuation of Deliver, uh, but obviously with with a much stronger community around it and a lot of attention at the time. um, And it just made sense. It was like an easy switch because mentally it fits what's how I would approach deployments. Yeah. What's interesting about that is Deliver and eDeliver attracted me because like you said, they were a series of shell scripts. And so if, coming from my experience and I, I, I fought you tooth and nail probably a little bit as we went, uh, we laughed how old school my approach to everything is. 
because like a bunch of shell scripts to me is is my history of deploying apps. Like usually I just write a new one each time and just rerun it to, you know, push out a new version and stuff like that. And so that was very attractive. But yet once we got started, uh, we didn't end up using either of those tools uh, to deploy changelog.com. Uh, I just wanted to mention, I emailed you first in July 3rd of last year of 2016. And uh, once you said that you were interested, I sent back an email with a list of our needs and our wants and then things that I wasn't sure about and a timeline, which I, I, I want to bring up the timeline because it's funny <laughs> in retrospect. And I think probably everybody who works in this industry can laugh at timelines and the naivety sometimes of developers. Um, so this email is July 3rd. And I what said year? of 2016, okay. of last year. But in the email, I said in the timeline, I said, we want to launch in July. We have a lot of content to import into the new site, so having it up and running in the next week or two will help us keep that time frame. And then I said it'll also be cool to publish our work somehow to share with others and give you some props. So this show is a part of that publishing. We also have some other ways we're going to go about publishing as well. But I just think it's funny that, you know, how I was like, let's just launch in a week or two. And uh, we are very much, when did we launch, Adam? October? October, yeah. Yeah, so. And even then it was like, Weeks and weeks of like focused uh, content migration, content updating yeah. from like old stuff that we had, old posts, old podcasts that just kind of needed to be massaged. That was in a WordPress database that got pulled over to this and, you know, transpiled the markdown that, you know, that whole process. It was a, right. it was a lot tagging and adding guests and adding hosts, all this new stuff. The CMS has uh, as it's, yeah. you know, it just wasn't there before. We were 90% done, which meant we only had 90% left <laughs> to complete. Uh, and I don't want to act like it was Gerhard's fault that we didn't launch uh, mm-hmm. right away. It was it was all us. But uh, timelines are funny. And then, Gerhard, uh, to that email, first of all, you were very interested. You were very excited about making the approach public because that's uh, something that you've been about open source and and uh, sharing, sharing what you work on and sharing your findings. And uh, you sent me a list of questions. Neither one of us probably remember the list, but I know because I just looked it back up. You you sent us 17 questions to get started. <laughs> so this that is like, like me. Yeah, I'm trying to paint the picture of what it's like to work with Gerhard because you're very thorough, uh, you're very goal based, and uh, you made sure that we documented everything. Take take us a little bit through the process of how you went from okay, uh, here's somewhat of a random stranger on the internet that I'm going to help deploy an Elixir Phoenix. Uh, application with a Postgres database to having, you know, a finalized system that is our infrastructure and that works. How do you, how did you even know where to start with me? Well, I suppose the first step was making sure that we keep the what from the how separate because there are two distinct things. And for someone such as yourself, Jared, it's very easy to mix the two, right? And it's natural for you to think about the how, how are you going to achieve something in the Mm -hmm. context of what you're trying to achieve? So for me, the first thing was to focus and drive out all the answers to my what questions, just to understand what you're actually trying to get out of this. Because if you just wanted to deploy an application, you would have done that yourself. It was a lot more than that, right? So you needed the entire infrastructure to be configured and set up in such a way so that it can be easy to update, to manage, and so Mm -hmm. that you don't have to worry about a lot of the details that that go underneath. Um, And I think 
for me, the most important thing was to understand your approach and also how you see infrastructure and, and how you see deployment. Because based on that, we could have gone so many different ways, right? So just like look at Deliver, eDeliver, Capistrano, and Chef, mm -hmm. and Puppet, and all these things, all these tools which are used for, for deployments. Uh, there's so many ways, right, of skinning the cat. Uh, but the point is figuring out what works for you, what you're comfortable with. You keep alluding to the old school approach and to the bash scripts. Right. And this was something that was easy for me as well. It was a mental model that worked well for me. Uh, I was comfortable with, and I have already used it in a couple of production deployments. Um, these are just like WordPress websites and just different applications, backend applications. And it was something which I worked on over the years and it just made sense for me. So I knew that it would make sense for you as well. Mm -hmm. So knowing the how part fairly well and understanding the mechanics, I could steer you towards the what and driving out the important things, such as, for example, backups, right? Um, is availability important to you? How important is it? And what limitations or what constraints do we have when it comes to the infrastructure? Um, do we have API calls or do we have like, servers which come and go on a daily basis, or do we have something which is more permanent? Um, and all like the 17 questions which you mentioned were just like a conversation starter uh, yeah. about how you see the world and how you see changelog working, right, in the big picture, because you went from like an old infrastructure, an old setup, uh, which was working well in some respects, uh, mm -hmm. but it had some, you know, drawbacks. So you wanted to address some of the drawbacks, but also keep a lot of the things which worked well. Yeah. So this wasn't like a greenfield project in the sense that you already had your workflows, your changelog workflows, and we had to build something that would support those workflows. Yeah. Yeah, just to give a, a bit of an idea, the questions coming back were not uh, like which version of Postgres are you running and stuff like that. It was these big picture goals. Like what do you, for instance, I do have the list here, just uh, we don't have to go into detail on these, but... Uh, what would you like to happen when the website goes down? Uh, are you set on Linode? Because that was something that I had mentioned in the email. And um, that one's a little bit, I guess you could say that one's a little bit specific. But um, do you want to see logs from specific or all components? Stuff like that. So it's like, it's higher level questions than you would expect at first, even though there's many of them. Um, and they were conversations around, like you said, conversation starters around what we need and not necessarily how we want those needs to be fulfilled. Exactly, and also the process, this fits fairly well in the process which I'm very familiar with, specifically using a story backlog of stories and you separate things into features, stories which have value, which have business value and chores which are stories that you know are required for the well-running of the team of the project, and also bugs, right? Regressions or just stuff that you know you have already delivered. You've already gotten points for business points in terms of business value. However, some bugs were introduced, and stuff which used to work no longer does. Um, so in that process, we used Pivotal Tracker which um, just embraces this um, process of learning and discovery and sharing. Uh, what you learn. And that worked well for us because we were a distributed team. It was just a few of us. We had very limited time. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I, for one, I only had half an hour every day. That was it, right? That was that was on a good day. So what can you possibly do, achieve, right, in half an hour and do that every single day so that in like a month, two months, you get to this point where you can like switch the infrastructure on and you have all these high picture goals, right, uh, dealt with and, and, and addressed. So knowing what to focus from a user perspective, right, like your users and you yourselves are users of this thing, um, helped me prioritize things and helped me just figure out what what makes most sense, right? Because as I say, there are so many approaches and they all have their own merits. Mm-hmm. And based on what I knew and based on the constraints, it was the sensible thing to do, the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, as you know, as years go by, I realize that learning about things, right, and accepting that you will never know everything and you will always discover something new and you'll have forgotten things, right? You will make mistakes. So working in a way that embraces this is really helpful. Um, Also, sharing your learnings and sharing your decision-making and involving everyone else around you is also very important. So in that respect, having, you know, um, in our case, Pivotal Tracker, as I said, having that tool to capture all this context, to capture all the commits, right? To focus on what we're trying to achieve and to keep us on point every single time I would start in the morning, I would have that half an hour um, mm-hmm. to do what, um, what, what I was trying to achieve. And um, also having the conversations and having this um, delay, right? There was a time delay because I'm in London, right? And you're right. in, you're in, I was waiting for you to say, oh, I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> in Nebraska. And, uh, or, yes, as you call, exactly. or as you called it in email, Oklahoma. <laughs> Oklahoma, that's it. Yeah, which is relatively yeah, close enough. Close. I just... <laughs> and, you know, Adam was there in the picture as well. I think you had also someone working on the design yeah. of the website. So you had like all these people, some haven't even met, right? I mean, we two have, but I haven't met the others. And um, I haven't actually even like talked to them like over emails. So I can be real. Having... I can be fake. Exactly, right? Yes. <laughs> How do I know that? You could be like the <laughs> next next version of Siri or Alexa. <laughs> Adam's alternate personalities. Exactly. So working with a team like this, it, it required an approach that would make sure that everything we've decided and everything we did, there's always there, right? When you forget or when you wonder why was this done in that way or why is this thing missing? There's always something to go back to and to try and understand, right? To understand why we made certain decisions. And a lot of the teams and a lot of the code bases which I've worked on and with are lacking this, which is so important like a year, two years in, right? People change, they come and go, um, and the tools change, right? Um, So how do you preserve the original intent and how do you preserve what matters over time? Yeah. And this is one solution, not saying it's the best, it's the one which works well. So I'm prepared to change it when I will learn that there is a better approach. But for the time being, given the constraints and given the goals, this worked well, I believe. Yeah, so uh, Gerhard has a talk he's given called Not Working Together, which uh, we'll link up the slides to that. They're on speaker deck. Um, we'll link that up in the show notes as well. Gerhard, is that a talk that was taped? Do we have a video of that? Or is there? A, uh, are you going to do an encore presentation? Or what's the deal with, with your talk? 
I'm not sure if it was recorded, the talk. It was only a 10-minute one, which is a fairly short one. Yeah. Um, it was given at the London Ruby user group, and it was given, I think, November, I believe, I'm not sure, of 2016. Okay. And it was trying to capture exactly this. How do you approach working in a team which doesn't work together, right? I right. pair every single day, and I've been I've been doing that for many, many years, and um, I switch teams on a regular basis. And um, having worked uh, with many different teams of different sizes, um, I've been working with, with Pivotal and for Pivotal for many years now. Uh, I've been working uh, for IBM for a while. And they themselves have been you know, consulting for all sorts of small and big companies and enterprises. How do you keep the context and keep everyone involved and engaged and keep the information flowing, right? And the knowledge flowing and the, the learnings flowing um, in a way that uh, makes sure that when you finish a project or when you move off, all that knowledge isn't lost. So that taught me a lot about how to approach things in a way that it's, it's, like, a, it's like a team effort, right? It's, it's, it's not one person, it's not one approach, uh, it has to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes it's more difficult than it sounds, uh, but ultimately it works really well when you engage everyone around you and you make sure that everyone is committed and involved right, in everything that we do. And how can you do that, right? You can't have rock stars and superstars just going off tangents and doing their own little thing. So in this way, right, sharing everything, being able to switch approaches and being able to consider other things, I think is is, is necessary. Mm-hmm. So coming back to our own little setup, in comparison to a lot of the projects, most of the projects that I've actually been with, this is very, very simple and very small. And it has to be approached differently. So you cannot use, or well, you could, but it doesn't make sense to use something a, a big platform as a service like Kubernetes or or Cloud Foundry or or even like Docker Swarm, uh, Mesos. There are so many these days. Uh, right. They have they have their own place and they have their own advantages. But in this context, considering the old school elements, it just didn't make sense. Yeah. So well, let's pause here. I have I have two thoughts. First of all, we're going to get into the infrastructure that we came up with and uh, talk about some of the details so that people can see how it all works and why we came to those particular conclusions. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I want to I'll tee this up for you and we'll ask it on the other side of the break, but uh, we talk about this list of questions that you started asking and uh, I, I, was, I told Adam I very much hopped on the Gerhard train and you know I was like, okay, just take me on your process and I will follow it. Um, you know, kind of kicking and screaming along the way, uh, of course. But the the question that I think people are probably thinking, or I would be thinking, is, oh, you know, Gerhard knows which questions to ask. But at a higher level, how can I get to a point in my understanding where I know what questions need to be asked in order to come up with something that fits, you know, my scenario? Coming up after the break, we ask Gerhard how he knows what questions to ask when setting up an infrastructure that has particular needs. We also talk about why Pivotal Tracker, believe it or not, is a crucial tool for his process. How we're using Docker and the distinct units that make up our CI flow. Stay tuned. 
this episode is brought to you by Hired. Hired matches outstanding people with the world's most innovative companies. At Hired, your dream job is waiting to apply to you. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. The best part is Hired is completely free to you. It won't cost you anything. In fact, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double the hiring bonus to $600. Once again, go to Hired.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. Gerhard, what I teed up for you before the break, which I'm still curious about, is how you know what questions to ask when you're when you're tasked with, you know, set up a infrastructure for this particular need. You asked me 17 things. That was just a kickstart. I'm sure there's lots of questions that you asked throughout the process, but how do you even know where to start? Because if I can know where to start, then I won't need, you know, somebody yeah. else to <laughs> ask me the questions. Yeah, I don't need you anymore. But how do you know? Is it just you just experience it so many times that you just uh, I won't answer for you. Go ahead. How do you how do you know which questions to ask? I think a big part of that is experience, definitely. Yeah. But also you have to go back to the first question, which is what you're trying to achieve. What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to uh, do differently than you're you're already doing or or you already have been doing? So. Are you trying to continue the same process or trying to introduce a new process? What matters to you? What is important? And Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, just people don't answer that basic question. And obviously, they can never achieve right what they intend to achieve because they haven't even stopped to think, what is important to me? I mean, if you start looking at the tools and picking your tools before you even know what you're trying to achieve, how can you be successful? Um, so I suppose focusing on what, what really matters, such as, Mm. for example, do you care about daily backups? Do you, do you need daily backups? Okay. So that's like one thing. Uh, is there like any legacy content to migrate? Okay. What type of content and just trying to understand the problem and you're here to basically, it's just, it makes you outline where you are and what you know, and being very clear about what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And um, another, for instance, on that. So just thinking back to some of the our situation specifically with ChangeLog, which these are things that Adam and I know almost inherently because we live it right in our work and in our process is we know things about what we need that you don't know as a third party coming in. And so one thing that I said to you, which I think you keyed off on uh, early on, is that if we have a couple hours of downtime, now we're going to be mad about it. A couple of minutes would be fine. A couple of hours might be upset, but our business doesn't, you know, tank, right? It's not like Amazon where for every second they're down, they're losing X millions of dollars in, in revenue. And so I said something to you like, this is our goals. This is our needs. Of course, we don't want any downtime. We want to know about it as soon as the website is down. But if the website does go down, it's not going to put us out of business. Unless it never comes back up again. <laughs> so, and in fact, we had a little bit more frequently. If it happened frequent, then it might be bad. But sure. Know. But just knowing that we don't need that those five nines or six nines or right. I don't know how many nines people need it nowadays uh, was something that informed you on the types of solutions 
that you could come up with. And frankly, in that case, things that we don't have to do, which other people might have to. And so we can come up with something uh, less complex than, than you would otherwise if we required that always on. So insights like that, you know, that's why your questions were like, what, what would happen if the website go down? Do you want daily backups? Um, do you also asked us about legacy content. You asked us about existing relationships. So, um, you know, we have service providers that we work with, Linode, Fastly, um, others. And so we had conversations around those things, um, because of course that's going to limit certain choices as well. But let's get back to, before we get into the, the, the guts of it, the, the Docker and the Ansible and the Concourse CI and all that good stuff, um, and the way it all works, let's get back to the process a little bit, because on the other side of the break, you mentioned working remotely together and the situation with the constraints that we were in and how we use Pivotal Tracker to communicate, basically, this process. And this is not meant as an ad for Pivotal Tracker by any means. This is a tool that Gerhard likes and I was happy to use. But tell us, because people hear, well, we use Pivotal Tracker, and perhaps that's just like, oh, okay, well, that's that's fine. That's how you <laughs> do things. Uh, where's the real goodness out of that? But for me, it was the way you went about using Pivotal. Um, and this would work just as well in another tool like Trello. But it's how you use it, which to me was unique because I've been on lots of projects that use tools like these. And you had a certain level of thoroughness and particularness with how we went about it that ended up as we were doing it, I was thinking, man, he sure is a little bit, mm, how do I say it, kindly persnickety? That's not kind. He, particular about how this tool is being used, right? Um, but at the end of the day, I saw, oh, there's a lot of value there because now we know everything's in there. Go ahead and break out for us how you go about this communication with Pivotal and why that was so important to success. So I think, um, first of all, I've used many different tools, but Pivotal Tracker is the one which embodies the extreme programming process the best. Mm -hmm. um, understanding the extreme programming process is important, and Pivotal Tracker is the tool which is a means to an end, not the end in itself. And that's important to remember. It doesn't matter what you use. It's just a tool, right? It's your process, which, which you mentioned. So, for example separating the what from the how, right? What we're trying to achieve and how we're trying to achieve them, just keep the two separate. So when you define the stories, the units of work, um, the perspective is always what you're trying to achieve. So not being prescriptive about how that will be achieved or how should people go about their jobs, right? That's, that's, that's not how to approach a story. It's always focusing on uh, who benefits, right, from this and what are they benefiting from in the first place? So describing the why, why are we even doing this in the first place? And once you do that, so once you have like this beginning of a story, then you have the place where, where all this context can be attached, right? So for example, um, developers, engineers, software engineers, they go and like make changes, make, make code changes, and the commits, right? How they change code can be linked to a story. And that is very, very important because then you can see how things are changing and the context, the business context in which they are changing. Um, also, we always have conversations, right, about things, how we're, how we're approaching things, we're making decisions all the time. Um, a lot of them are not worth capturing, but some of them, especially the crucial ones, and again, like, you need to, I don't know, just be sensible about it, I suppose. I mean, 
not everything is important, but you will know when something is worth mentioning. And I think a lot of it is discipline, to be honest, you know, taking yeah. the time and having a discipline to capture those things um, and trusting that eventually, you know, someone will be very, very thankful that you've done that. It's, I suppose, the same approach to commits, right? I mean, maybe those are easier to understand. When you do your commit summary, how do you do your commit summary and why do you do your commit summary? There are some very good blog posts out there which go into great detail about this. Uh, but the point is the same, right? Knowing why you're doing certain things and why they're important yeah. and having been in situations in which you wished there was more information, you wished the why was captured. Why did this happen? I can see how it happened, maybe, if I can understand the code, but why did it happen? And a lot of the time, the why gets always missed, whether it's the business why, whether it's like the, the code why, uh, whether it's the infrastructure why, but it's very important because then like we have this workaround in some places. We have many workarounds actually in quite a few places, but there's always a good reason. And the people that did those workarounds were not stupid. They were not trying to make your life difficult. They had to make certain trade-offs. Understanding what those trade-offs were and understanding why they chose something is the most important thing, not what was chosen. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the word discipline that you said there is excellent. I wish I would have thought of that because that's exactly what I was trying to describe. Uh, in fact, you're so disciplined with the way that you put everything into the project in Pivotal Tracker that I even, you know, wondered like, was this guy in the military or something? Because it's like that level of discipline that you don't see in too many people with the use of a tool. Like I'm going to use it this way. I'm going to use it this way every single time. And everything is going to go in the way that, that we plan on it. And I think it's because you think about the pivotal tracker project differently than, than I was and that other people perhaps do in that I didn't see any value in it as a, as an artifact, as a documentation or a reference point once the project is over with or once it's moved on to other phases. I think of it, maybe it's because of the way that I use even Trello, it's almost ephemeral, right? Like things come and go and they move around and Adam and I open and close boards all the time, right? Uh, we, we, we use them uh, undisciplined. Um, but you were using it in such a way that, you know, either it lives in the code or in the commit history, or it lives in the pivotal tracker project as open and closed, you know, tasks and chores with conversations and histories. And we're going to use that, and we're going to refer back to things. It's documentation at the end of the day. And I've actually used it that way since we've, you know, since I've needed to see, you know, why did we do this? And I go back into the project, and I see exactly why, because like you said, the whys were captured in there, but they wouldn't have been if you hadn't been so disciplined, because I would have emailed you or talked to you about it on Skype and forgot about it much later. Exactly. I think I think that summarizes it really, really well. Um, and I think everything starts from a very simple concept, and that is it's not about you. It's about everyone else around you. So mm. if you're doing your job in a way that will always, always benefit the others, then that will start changing the way others around you approach their work and they will behave the same, which means that you will benefit from what they do. So the selfishness is removed from the process and that changes the team dynamics in a way that I think it 
it makes like the team and the workplace a great, great place to be in. And um, everything is pleasant. Everyone knows everything. Everything is easy to find. Um, if you forget thing, it's fine. You can always go back. If you make a mistake, it's not a problem, right? Because everything around it is built in such a way so that either someone will learn from that and will improve things, or you will just discover something that no one has thought about before. So mm-hmm. you can't make mistakes, uh, not any mistakes which are bad, right? Everything is a learning opportunity and everything you do, you're sharing it with everyone, everyone around you. It does take more effort. It is more difficult, but it's so much more satisfying. I mean, even open source, right? All the tools which you use, it's other people doing things for everyone else because they believe it's the right thing to do. One thing on on Pivotal, I guess for me, is like I use this tool. Um, and again, as Jared said, this is not an ad for Pivotal Tracker, although I do have some extreme appreciation and, and, uh, and respect for the tool because it requires you, Jared, as you mentioned, like the discipline, the, um, the attention to detail, the particularness. It requires that of anybody leading a team through this, whether it's two people or 10 people, there is a way you use Pivotal Tracker that gets you the result you need, which is thoroughness through a process. And I used it in an agile process and with two people, I'm just kind of curious on like, maybe this is going too far in the weeds to it, but like, you know, why this tool is the choice you choose. Is it the feature set of the tool or is it because it's so rigid and it's in it's how you use the tool to get to the goal of like completing a feature set or something like that? Um, it has its drawbacks um, and it does have its sharp edges as any tool does. Um, however, from all the other tools out there, it's the one which, as I said, embodies the XP process the best. Um, and shifting our focus a little bit from Pivotal Tracker to something else that we're using, which is like Ansible and Docker, both of those, they're simple and they are, for example, Docker. It makes it really, really easy to get started and it handles with compartmentalizing state and just uh, ring fencing around dependencies really, really well. It has a lot of features. It added so many features in, 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 in the last months. Most of them, most of the new features, I, I'm, I'm not even familiar with. But the point is, when it comes to sandboxing the runtime and making the runtime reproducible, uh, Docker does it really, really well. For developers, right? It's really too, it's really easy to get started with it. Now, Docker is well, it's a lot more than just like a container. Uh, contain, uh, I can't pronounce this word. This is a difficult one. Containerization. Containerization is that correct? That's right. I think you were trying so, to say Moby. Moby, <laughs> yes. Well, now it's called Moby. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I still go to Docker. So Docker. <laughs> I, don't, I do too. In fact, I, I was looking, you know, as Gerhard, as you know, Docker, our Docker instance uh, had an issue, we had a bug, and we couldn't, We our deploys were failing, and I was looking, this was right when they were at DockerCon a few weeks back, or last week, I don't know when it was, and they had just renamed Moby, you know, they had, and they redirected Docker Docker to Moby Moby, and I was yeah. in the middle of trying to find a Docker bug. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I found myself on this Moby repository, but I hadn't seen the announcement yet. And I'm like, what is going? Who's Moby Moby? 
I, I didn't know what was going on. Somebody was, was messing with your DNS, man. I didn't know what was happening. Then I like I went and checked Twitter. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I know what, what happened to me. There but you go. Anyways, you were saying containerization. Contain yes, that's correct. Containerization. So when it comes to containerization, it's really simple and easy for developers to just use it. So there are other technologies, such as, for example, Garden, which I'm fairly familiar with. Uh, maybe most of the listeners aren't. But the point is, Docker isn't the first one, but it's the one which made it really easy. And even though they've added a lot of features, which I think are moving it away from what it used to be, it's still the easiest way to get started. It's very self-contained. It's fairly predictable. Yes, it does have its bugs, as we've discovered and as we've seen. Yes, there is like some fragmentation and some things which, you know, I wish they were better. But overall, it works well. And mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of issues with it. We had some, right? It's impossible sure. not to have any issues because it means you're not using it. You're not changing it, right? You're not updating it. So we have come across a few bugs. Um, did it take the system down? I don't think so. No, it did not. Like the, the deploys failed, yes. There were some instances which piled up of changelog.com. The database right. had too many connections. Uh, it was fairly easy to just like stop it and start it and like un get the pipeline unstuck and off it went. Right. Same real thing quick, now. Real quick, sorry. real quick. While we're, I know we moved a little bit past Moby, but while we're still kind of in the situation of Moby, uh, Adam, we should mention that we have Solomon Hikes confirmed to come on Go Time on May 18th. Yes, that'll be a loud show. A live show. Go to changelog.com slash go time to subscribe. Or do you guys know we have a master feed? Changelog.com slash master. Just get all of our shows, Cubbies. They're yeah, all good, right? They're all good. Um, so if, this, all. if you're listening to this before May 18th, subscribe. If you're listening after May 18th, well, you missed a live show. But the new show, the published show will be coming out soon. It might even be out there. So go listen to that. All about the rename and that whole deal. So just mention that as a sidebar. Gerhard, real quick, before we get to the next break, because we're going to talk about on the other side what went well, what didn't go well. But one thing we haven't done yet is just to give the lay of the land with regard to what is the changelog.com infrastructure. So if you had to give a lightning talk about not how we went about doing it, but what we ended up with, you know, describe to somebody what it is and, all, and how it works. Give us that. We know there's Ansible. We know there's Docker. But uh, kind of give... Explain it to Adam like he's five. That's right. I'm five. Help me out. All right, Adam. So ci.changelog.com is what manages all our infrastructure and the application lifecycle as well. It's powered by Concourse. It's this newish CI. Um, and the runtime, as I've already mentioned, is Docker. Ansible does all the heavy lifting. So we have Ansible playbooks, and they capture the configuration for a specific host type. So the application host, for example, or the CI host, and those hosts get configured accordingly. When it comes to the application, um, our listeners already know, it's Elixir, and which is uh, running on top of the Erlang VM, uh, which runs inside a Docker container. And PostgreSQL is the database. Um, Elixir connects to the PostgreSQL. And Nginx, there's Nginx in front. Nginx proxies request to the Elixir application. 
And in front of all of that, we have CDN. We're using Fastly for that. And that's fronting and distributing all the static content, all the MP3s, all the episodes, and all of that. Um, there are two repositories, both hosted on GitHub. One of them is the infrastructure repository, which contains all the code and all basically all the glue holding all the services together. And uh, the application, which is already open sourced, the changelog.com application. When it comes to the services that we use, all the credentials, they're stored in LastPass. That's where all the credentials are stored. And when we configure our CI, we pull credentials from LastPass. Uh, we do that by just either one of us can just like pull the credentials via the LastPass CLI. Um, we configure the CI using this tool called Fly. It's self-contained and it's very easy to use and fairly self-explanatory. And I think that's it. What did I miss, Jared? Hmm. I think uh, backups. You didn't. You didn't cover backups, but you said the CI. Oh, so one thing I'll just be clear is that the so we're on Linode as our host, and so we have a Linode VPS, or we have two of them. The main one, which is the uh, changeall.com, and then the one that hosts the utility application, which is includes the CI. Um, just worth mentioning that each of our you know distinct units are our application server, our web server, and our database are separate Docker instances on that one same host. It's a pretty beefy server, though, the, the main one. Yeah, nice and fat. In it fact, is, it's, and it's underused, it, great it underuse, I have <laughs> to yes. say. One of the advantages of this, and this has been a desire of mine very much from the start, is uh, we may never have to scale out. We can probably just continue to... Well, we're not utilizing the server as is, but we can probably just only have to scale up and uh, may never have to scale out just at the traffic levels that we get and the speed of Elixir and 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 the beefiness of the Linode uh, VPS that we're on. And I think that's excellent because it keeps our infrastructure very simple. And the CDN in front, make sure the right. content is properly distributed and all that. Yes, so that is a big, big advantage. Um, also, the backups, right? Having a single instance, it's really simple to just basically archive everything like the whole application, the whole database, everything, the whole lot, right? And you have like this massive tarball and you store it on S3. Uh, it's a full backup. Uh, it's self-expiring, which means that after like so many days or so many weeks, it's you, you can configure your, your S3 bucket where we store uh, the backups to self-expire uh, the objects. Um, it makes it really easy to just like pull any backup and just restore it. And you have like a full copy of the entire changelog. Now, it would be not too difficult to store it on different hosts, right? If you had like a database host or whatnot, but it would still mean like more components and you have like network in between and all that stuff, which complicates mm -hmm. things. So it's simple. We could have downtime, but it'd be fairly easy to redeploy and reconfigure everything, the entire changelog on any VM or on any cloud instance. Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter with which provider. That was my next question was thinking like a listener might be thinking, well, you chose Linode, which is a great partner of ours. But if for some reason that relationship changed or for whatever reason, um, another cloud was better for us or for whatever reason we needed to move, whether it was for redundancy or a simple migration or whatever, you know, being able to move to a different cloud. So that was part of the 17 questions, I'm assuming, or part of the early mm -hmm. requirements set. Yes, that is correct. I did ask if you know you want to use multiple cloud providers for redundancy. 
um, or if you have like any preference. Um, however, you will need backups, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you're hosting with, you do want to have full backups. I mean, data corruption, data loss, all sorts of things can happen, right? I mean, it's not just downtime that you have to worry about. And full redundant backups, you know, stored off site are important. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone can do them, right? I mean, some systems are too big, right? And you just can't do them. However, for the changelog and for the majority, 99% of the systems out there, you you can do full backups. Yeah. And that's why you have like the whole push towards microservices and all that, where you have smaller components because the components are getting too big, have too much state, too much um, knowledge, and too much um, responsibility. And it's really difficult, right, to have all of this like in a single place. And how do you how do you even back that stuff up? How do you recreate it? How do you scale it? How do you so you know it's different trade-offs, yeah. but we definitely do not need a distributed, you know, always available, always on sort of system. So why why have one in the first place? Mm -hmm. I'll also mention that our AWS bill is quite inexpensive too. I think just searched our uh, my email real quick to look at the latest bill, and it was four dollars and seventy six cents. So you're seeing that they self-expire these backups. You know how many days? It, do we go back for self-expiration? Do they eventually just like delete themselves or how does that process work? Does it, do we store just endless amounts? Do we have last year's backup there? How far back does it go? So I think when we configured it, I think Jared configured this, but we uh, decided to go with seven days. Mm -hmm. um, so every day, daily, right? We take full backups and I think they're close to 12, 11 or 12 gigs. And so you have seven times that. And when you set up the buckets, as you can like version bucket, you can configure different policies on the bucket and like, different options. One of them is just like expiring objects which are older than a specific time period. Mm -hmm. So that means that you don't have to manually or like even have like an automated tool or CI or whatever job to delete things or a cron job, whatever might be the case. Um, AWS takes care of that for you. It was fairly simple, right? All the data incoming into AWS S3 is free, so you don't pay for that. If we were to restore from backup, you know, the bill in that month would be slightly higher, but that doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. That's a bill you gladly pay too. It's like, yeah. Yeah, we, we saved ourselves. Thank you. Here's the money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when it comes to restoring from backup, that's something which we need to automate. Uh, we did have a couple of stories with it manually just to make sure that everything works and you know it's it's still it's still correct so to speak uh, but we still have some outstandings such as automating this um, restoration process as you know the ba your backups are only so good as your restore process is and right now it's manual it's documented well documented and it's used and it's used exactly because I think you use it fairly often Jared Yes, so it's manual right now, but I will pull down our full backup. By the way, they're about 17 gigabytes now, so it's growing, but yeah, we just have seven or eight of them up there. Um, I'll pull down the whole thing and extract it into my development environment and use it. So for two reasons. First of all, just it's a manual process to make sure our backups are still working, which is worse than an automated process, but is better than no process. And secondly, because I like to develop with real data that's mm. you know, has recent episodes and, and all the imagery that we've uploaded and stuff. So I will do that, not on a weekly basis, but you know, every other week or so. Man, I would love to have that. I didn't even know you were doing that. I want that. 
I oh, need man. that. I'll hook you up. You know somebody, right? I do. I know. I know. <laughs> I know a guy behind the guy. We can ask. We can ask Gerhard how to do it. <laughs> After the break, we talk about why Gerhard chose Ansible and Docker over something like Kubernetes. We also talk about our potential lock-in to the hosting provider we chose. Linode, as you may know, is a partner of ours, and everything we do at ChangeLog is hosted on Linode servers. But the question is, are we locked in, or are we free to move to another hosting provider if you want? This question brought up our tie to Docker. Are we locked in to only using Docker? Stick around to find out. This episode of the Changelog is brought to you by Microsoft and Azure Open Dev Conference. The event is over, but all the talks are streaming on demand right now. Head to azure.com slash opendev. This conference is focused on showcasing open source technologies in the cloud. Learn how you can build containerized microservices and improve your open source DevOps pipeline. Hear from community leaders like Gabe Monroy from Azure and Deus, Michelle Nerali from Kubernetes and Helm, and Scott Johnston from Docker. Learn about app platforms, containers, DevOps, and more. All this is provided at no cost. Once again, head to azure.com slash opendev. So Gerhard, in the in the break, we often ask some questions, and before the break, Jerry was teeing up sort of this retrospective look back to see what went well, you know, what didn't go well, and kind of like see how we can move towards the future. And that got me thinking about the episode that we haven't released yet, which is coming out very soon on Kubernetes. Um, and I've just been thinking about like this whole conversation, this what you've built for us seems very bespoke, very particular for us. And since that Kubernetes conversation, I've been thinking like why. Um, maybe why didn't Kubernetes fit for us? And maybe in your own words, what what questions do you often get asked whenever you build something specific like this that isn't Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry or X, whatever it might be? So when I started with Ansible and Docker 2014, Kubernetes, I think it was only just starting or not even started. It was like very early days. The idea existed, but I don't think the product existed. Um, Kubernetes came a really long way when it comes especially to statefulness, right? handling stateful data. Um, I think it came a long way. Uh, when it comes to data services and like PostgreSQL specifically, um, I mean, even now, I believe Kelsey Hightower recommends to not run any database inside the container. We do that and it works well. It's all right. Um, it is production, it is a production system. We didn't have really any issues. Uh, but I know there are many, many reasons why it's a bad idea, right? Uh, but it works, right? In some cases, it, it works. So with the latest Kubernetes version, I believe it's 1.6, um, I think it's almost there as far as we are concerned. So we're very close to being able to actually use it. Um, it will, it, it's still, the question of complexity still remains. I mean, Ansible is fairly simple. I mean, when you look at what we have, I know it's not public yet, but I hope it will be very soon. It's fairly simple, and yet still things go wrong, right? The Kubernetes service is very big. 
the community is different, of course, and I'm not suggesting that Ansible and Kubernetes can even compare them, but as solutions for what we what we need, Ansible was easier at the time, right? I knew it better. I had less questions about it. Um, it it fit the old school mentality fairly well. I think now that Kubernetes is a lot more mature, we can start considering it, and you know, very slowly we can start migrating components across. Why not? But you will still have these extra layers of things and like all this documentation to go through and understand and to keep up with changes as they happen. Uh, what we have is simple, imperfect in many ways, but it works. I'm just getting to learn our current stack stack. I mean, you're going to switch me to Kubernetes all of a sudden? <laughs> well, I'm not pushing for it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm playing the the advocate out there who's listening to the show thinking, Yeah, I've been hearing nothing but good things about Kubernetes or other systems out there that essentially help you that that basically took the 17 questions. I'm assuming this is all assumptions, assuming that the 17 questions that Gerhard asked originally was something that the overall community of Kubernetes asks or something like that asks when saying, let me automate your, your infrastructure. Let me build out your infrastructure and make it very um, command driven. As we heard about on that show, rather than maybe, not so much the complexity or even in your case where you say simple, Gerhard, it, to not have to do it yourself or think through it yourself and, you know, remake the will each time. It, you seem like a master craftsman with a lathe where Kubernetes may not be generic, but it's a global system that fits a lot of problems and pretty well. And it's evolved over the last year. Yes, I, I definitely ag agree with that. Um all these platforms as a service, I mean, I work on one day in, day out for many years now, which is Cloud Foundry. Um, there are some similarities. Again, they're not the same, right? It's difficult to compare because they're not like apples to apples. But the point is, um, just as uh, VMs and all the virtualization used to be a great thing and new thing and this exciting thing many, many years ago, so are all these platforms as a service and they're maturing and they're, and they're coming to a point where it's easy to run your WordPress. It's still not straightforward. You still have to jump through a few hoops and adapt a couple of things. Um, and I think for a lot of people out there, they do make sense. But when it comes like when it comes to Elixir, when it comes to Erlang, when it comes to Phoenix, even though we don't use a lot of the Erlang VM features, um, I think because of all the content which we have and the way our workflow works and is the, our, our workflow, it makes it easier to use something like this because it is very, very bespoke. And when you're trying to do migration such as this, I think you need to be careful as to how much you're changing. Every single thing should be a stepping stone, right? It shouldn't be too big because you will never finish it, right? It has to be small enough. And yes, it will never be the right thing because you don't have time to keep up with the right thing. As long as you're moving in the right direction, that's what matters. And I think we are, right? We are using containers. They work. We might not be using Kubernetes. However, we're much closer to using it than we were a year ago. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I would have set this entire thing up myself, we would be tied specifically to the VPS because I would have installed the entire system directly on the quote-unquote hardware. And um, a migration to anything different would have been a huge undertaking that we probably would have said, ah, it's not worth our effort. But with this system, 
Gerhardt has set us up to have the flexibility and the capability of moving not just hosts, but um, container platforms. Eh, maybe not container platforms. I don't know, Gerhard, could we switch off the of Run Docker? times. Yeah. I think I would say, yes, you could. You definitely could, right? Docker yeah. is not. So one thing which I'm trying to emphasize, and maybe I'm doing it poorly, mm. is that we haven't been focusing on the stack, right? So we haven't chosen Docker for its features. We've chosen Docker for what it offers us in based on the goals, right? So based on the mm -hmm. goals and based on where we were, it was an easy step. It was an easy transition. I think that's important. Making steps small enough and manageable enough so you can keep doing them consistently and you mm -hmm. can, can keep moving towards where you're trying to get to because that changes in itself. Change log today, I'm sure, is very different than it was a year ago, right? You have like more shows, you have more content, you have more listeners. So the change along landscape is 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 changing, right? Pun intended. Right. Um, same thing for like you know all the containers and all the platforms. And one day, I do hope that my quote unquote um, homegrown system can be replaced easily with something that just handles all the complexities itself. I would very much like that. I would very much like that to not have to work at a low level, but work at a higher level. And as soon as systems are generic enough and easy to consume enough, we will do that. Um, because it's always, it's like a flow, right? It's, a, it's, it, it's never static. You've never arrived. You have to keep moving and you have to keep going because the landscape is changing. So yeah. you need to put yourself in a position where it's easy to do that, where it's easy to respond to change. It's easy to shift and move. And Kubernetes, yes, it is the biggest and the greatest thing today, but I can guarantee that two, three years from now, it won't be. There'll be yet another big, great thing. If you've learned anything, right, in the years of computers, is that every five, 10 years, the landscape is completely different. Yeah, why is the hard thing part? written in Elm? I mean, come on. Exactly. Come on already. Why is why aren't you guys using React? I mean, it's it's and then by the time I say that, it'll be Preact or it'll be uh, the next big thing. There's always the next big thing, and uh, we like to talk about the next big thing. And sometimes we like to use the next big thing, but oftentimes it's life is better, you know, two steps back from the edge. And you watch mm -hmm. the edge, you keep up with the edge, you talk about the edge, but you talk about it from a little bit of a distance. The safety. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about needs, right? Like if we had, like, if you said, hey, let's switch to Kubernetes, my first question would be, well, what do we gain? Like what, besides this, to tell people, oh, it's built on Kubernetes, and that cool would be factor. cool. So you gain the cool factor. Let's not discount that. It's real, right? Um, especially when you uh, op, you know, run a media company all about keeping up with open source software. You want you don't want to get too far behind. Right. But, but what would we gain? Like, what would be the tangible benefits of doing that? And can we measure those against the cost of change? And so, uh, where I would have ended up is usually the ROI on those changes would have been far too low because the change would have been expensive. Whereas where we are now, which feels very nice, as Gerhard has said, we've reduced the cost of change by keeping things simple, small, and containerized as possible. Um, so that if we do have a huge benefit, Maybe I'm wrong, and all of a sudden we need 40 instances uh, across multiple mm. regions, and oh, maybe we have to scale out real fast. Well, I think Kubernetes is probably positioned to do that better than our setup. But you know, what's the actual gain of switching? 
those are the kinds of things you got to ask yourself. If you think where we came from, though, you know, which is sort of what a retrospective is, like where do we come from? We used to deploy a a WordPress theme via our sync. Yep. We version controlled the theme itself and shipped that to GitHub. But it, it was essentially just an rsync push, so to speak, through SSH to the server. And it dropped what was there and replaced it. And that was us updating the site before in terms of how it worked. It was WordPress. And then you had to go in and do WordPress themes and plugins and things like that. So nothing against the WordPress landscape or the stack that is that. It's great for some people. It just didn't fit our future. That's sure. where we came from. It was just like, it just didn't fit the hacker to the heart mindset that we have now. Whereas <laughs> it, like now, Gerhardt, thank you. I mean, you, you've definitely taken us into the future. Um, so no knock against what at all, what you've done. Just the comparison of like, some people are going to be thinking, okay, you did this. Why don't you go bespoke versus go, you know, right. in quotes, mainstream Kubernetes, you know? Right. Um, well, I think Kubernetes isn't mainstream. Well, it's I mean, becoming. It's, it's certainly the the name now. I mean, the, in amongst large corporations, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. You see, you see all the big names using it, but wh- where are the one off? You know, the agencies, the small startups. Um, I think I think they'll get there as well. This is that but, year, I bet. Okay, you heard it here first, Adam Stack. Uh, well, I mean, on I just, the record, this yeah. is that year. This is that year. Um, uh, <laughs> so I think I think it's easy. It's very easy and it's very exciting to focus on the tools, right? And to focus on what is cool. Uh, but they, and it's easy, very easy to forget. Even I do that myself. They're just like a means to an end, right? They're not the end in itself. Just as I said about Pivotal Tracker before, it's not about using Pivotal Tracker. It's about using something which helps you follow a process which has proven itself time and time again, and it fits really well most development scenarios and most teams. Same thing with Kubernetes or Cloud Foundry or whatever else, whatever the next big thing will be. I mean, right now they're still very smart. They still require, I mean, if you, I don't know the Kubernetes stack as well as I know the Cloud Foundry stack, but there are many, many complex parts which are just like put together and they have a very specific role and they mostly work well, but sometimes they don't. And I get to see a lot of the scenarios when they don't work well. I get to debug those scenarios. And it is complicated, right? You need a lot more people to maintain a system like that. Right. So the question would be, why do I want this six, seven host EC2 instances or whatever VMs deployment of a platform as a service to manage this one application? Doesn't even make sense. Of course it doesn't. So then you go to like a hosted solution and there are many companies which already do that. They do offer Cloud Foundry hosting Kubernetes. We could go to Google directly and say, hey, can we just like run this on your Kubernetes deployment? That would be ideal. And you would find yourself that that migration from where we are now, it is easier than if we had gone from the WordPress days, right? And like the WordPress thing. So it it is just a transition. And we are going towards the future, right? However... As Jared said, the future is always a few steps ahead and you have to like, you know, pause and just like, just be mindful of the might of the landscape because it keeps shifting and moving. And what was great yesterday or today, it won't be so great tomorrow. And there will always be drawbacks and we never know all the failure scenarios because it hasn't been in production long enough. So, so it's discovering all these things, letting it mature, as some say, and then you know, when we are comfortable that we're gaining enough, making that change, but always focusing on what is important for us 
how easy it is to achieve that. And is it worth it? Because maybe it, it never will make sense to go to Kubernetes. Maybe what we have now is enough. Yeah. Right. Real quick, we're talking about our migration from WordPress and where we where we come from. Humble beginnings, Adam. If you recall, mm-hmm. before WordPress, there was Tumblr. Yeah. And, <laughs> and 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 so WordPress had a lot of Tumblr baggage in the form of a whole boatload of redirects oh from old Tumblr URLs to WordPress URLs. Now, Gerhard, you know we we brought with us a lot of re- redirects as well, and some of the fun of um getting the new system set up was you and I kind of uh, debating about how we go about implementing those and where they fit into the stack. Because, of course, with Nginx in front and the application routing uh, and a CDN, we could deal with those in multiple places. We end up you know, having Nginx do it. But uh, Adam wanted me to bring the Tumblr redirects along with us, too. So... Uh, a pack I had rat. A, a yeah, pack a little rat. Uh, URL hoarder as he <laughs> wanted to keep those redirects from years and years ago. And I, I had to show him, like, no one's hitting those, man. Like, that's never, it's not worth the effort. But we did bring with us a bunch of WordPress redirects, um, which is probably, which were, I hope was worth, was worth the effort. Let's, real quick, because we're getting, we're getting low on time, Gerhard, let's do our quick retrospective. And uh, the, the three of us together can talk about what went well, what didn't go so well, um, where we're lacking, where we where we're great. What are your thoughts? Um, I think our biggest achievement was um, capturing the entire life cycle of the infrastructure in a pipeline. Mm. We have Concourse to thank for that. The Concourse CI, which the URL is concourse.ci, very convenient, the domain. And uh, it allows us to have like a bird's eye view of everything, backups, infrastructure updates, and deploys. And it makes it easy to plug into Slack or Mm -hmm. S3 or any resource, which allows us to very quickly assemble a view which makes sense to us. So it's easy to see when something works, when something doesn't work, and it's easy to just like queue another backup, right? Queue another deployment if you want to do it manually. A lot of the stuff is automated. It just happens, right? You don't even have to think about it. And I think that is a big shift. So going from rsync to something which not only does it for you, but it gives you a big, like a bird's eye view, it's yeah. so valuable. Absolutely. And, and some of that, uh, which we didn't explain exactly how all that works, but... Uh, you know, every time we push to master on uh, our public GitHub repo, Concourse kicks in and runs that pipeline for us and does a redeploy. So we very much have that, you know, desired from a developer's perspective, just let me get push and get out of my way. Um, but we also have the insight, like you said, there's a dashboard that Concourse provides. We can go and watch the pipeline run, watch it fail, um, watch it get stuck, whatever it's going to do. Most of the time it passes and react as necessary. So that's very cool. Um, we've got the, the backups work very well. We have notifications uh, that work very well with regard to deploy success and failure, uh, site down, we're using Pingdom for that. There's a few other checks in there, not just for the website being pingable, but also for some performance, like how many milliseconds does it respond with, that kind of stuff, which is all provided via Pingdom. All of our logs are in a single place, which is really nice. Um, so anytime there's something going wrong, we can go to one dashboard, which we use Paper Trail for that. Everything logs to Paper Trail. 
instead of into these, into a syslog or into their own containers or what have you. And so we have a, a unified long eat interface, which is great when things go wrong as well. Those are all features that I'm not sure if we mentioned all of them uh, so far. And all that works really well. So in terms of like things that work well, uh, all of that works really well. I like when I push to master and it just goes. It's uh, it's really great to be. I'm less in, you know, back end code like you are, Jared. So I play more of a uh, a wingman, very much an assistant on on our application, mostly in the design front, usually content front, things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to not have to have done something complex to be like, okay, can I deploy? You know, whereas right. in past applications without this kind of uh, you know CI pipeline. It was, I had to have an SSH key and, you know, my machine had to be configured properly or something like that. Whereas now it's like, okay, I, I get pushed to master and I walk away. Exactly. And that's just like, that's like the surface and every right. single CI, which is like the modern CI will do that for you. Uh, but Concourse goes a lot deeper than that. And a lot of the features, which are like at its core, are still not using. For example, every single build runs in its own container. All the containers that we use to run the builds, they are using Docker images, which we produce, which we maintain, and they're like on our Docker Hub account. So it embraces this concept of container and everything that runs inside Concourse does so in containers. Now, when it comes to Docker and the image format, most don't know that Concourse actually is using Garden. So it's not using Docker. It is using Docker images, but it Hmm. runs the containers inside Garden. Um, and that's actually the containerization technology behind Cloud Foundry. So it just mm. goes to show that, you know, it was a choice that we made early on. And we made it knowing this fact, or me knowing this fact. And we have this, like, the the Docker image format and the Docker format, sorry, and the, uh, the container image, which allows us a level of flexibility and a level of repeatability, which was not possible before. And that's why whether we use Docker or something else, it doesn't really matter. And we choose and use different things based on what makes sense. But the container itself, I think, is here to stay. Yeah. So whether it's going to be Cloud Foundry or Kubernetes or whatever else, the container as a concept is very, very valuable. And we are definitely um, on the bandwagon, on that hype, the container hype. <laughs> We're on the container well. hype. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, get on that hype train. So uh, real quick, because we're short on time, Gerhard, in your eyes, and I'll share one as well, but what's uh, what's something that isn't working so well or didn't work well through the process? Um, I think one thing which I, I wish, sorry, do you want to go first? No, I was just I was just gonna make a joke about my SSH keys. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, that's the one thing. <laughs> yes, Jared was too old school <laughs> for some of the new stuff. <laughs> a lot of my my SSH key was so old school that a lot of the more well, recent I do remember version, that. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I literally couldn't log in. I I got rejected because my keys my uh, keys were too old. By <laughs> but actually not just by our new stuff, but by other servers that I've been managing. Yep. All of a sudden, I could no longer log in because I think Ubuntu or a recent kernel update or something, a uh, recent version of the SSH daemon uh, would not accept my keys any longer. So talk about kicking and screaming. I, uh, Gerhard actually rolled his eyes pretty hard when he realized how weak my, my SSH key. He says, how often do you rotate this? And I said, rotate it? Why would I do that? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> then I got to change every... Uh, I got to change it on all the servers I control. But 
that Go was ahead. a fun one. Yes, that that you're right. That did not work well. That did not um, work well. No, um, I think one of the thing which um, I, I I wish worked better. I mean, it did it didn't didn't work so well. Is that this like homegrown stuff, uh, the homegrown stack? It had some pain points, specifically about like some components not interacting very well together. We had like the Docker incident, I believe, um, and I wish um, well. It's 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 a difficult one because the pipeline and like our system could not have like healed itself so to speak. I mean, mm-hmm. healing just basically means stop it and start it again. Um, the majority of the times that actually fixed it. Um, I don't know. I think I haven't used it as much as you have, Jared. So I think yeah. you or Adam would be in a much better place to answer this question. Right. Yeah. So I think for from our perspective, and mostly it's mine because Adam. Uh, like you said, plays more on the front end, and when things are not going so well, it's it's usually means it's dealing with them. I think that mostly, um, it's not really technology that didn't work well. I think that it's knowledge transfer. So we have everything in the pivotal tracker that we did and that we set up, but it's not like it prognosticates problems and how to fix them, right? So mostly, it's that because you are the architect of this system. And I've been following along, but not necessarily internalizing every aspect of it like you have. When things do go wrong, I'm very much either, uh, you know, kind of troubleshooting in the dark, which I've been doing that for many years now. So I can, you know, I fix, I can find my way out of problems. But then I feel like, oh man, now I got to bug Gerhard because I can't figure this out or I'm afraid to live update this or stuff like that. And so mostly it's social and not technical where I've felt, you know, that feeling of like, oh, I don't want to nag this person, but I I don't have the confidence to make this change. I just want to make sure that I'm correct before I do it. And so I've had a few of those instances, but not many. Well, in response to that, um, I do have to say that I really enjoy this stuff. I really love infrastructure and like how everything fits. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I just like, I love doing it even in my free time, right? Because I learn things and I do things differently uh, than I would do like in my in my day job. Um, I do hope that not before long, we will move to a hosted system. So if we moved away from the infrastructure as a service and we move towards a platform as a service, such as a hosted Kubernetes or a hosted Cloud Foundry, and again, there are many companies which do that, uh, some better than the others. But the point is, if you have people that you know manage this and it's like a well-documented and well-known process, Heroku, for example, right? That was like the first maybe platform as a service, the first popular yeah. one for sure. So if you use something like that, some things would be easier and you wouldn't have these problems. But sure. at the same time, you would need to invest a lot of time moving your workflow, which requires like local state and local storage to something that everything is like stored in different systems and you have like stateful services and you query them and stuff like that. So it would complicate the application a lot, right? And you need to do things differently than you do today, which you're very comfortable with. So you have to ask yourself, what do you want to change? Do you want to change how you deploy things and how everything fits together? Or do you want to change um, your day-to-day changelog workflow? I just want to change me. <laughs> you you want to automate you. I just want me to be. No, if I just, you know, the more and more I get it, that's what I was joking earlier about. I'm just learning this stuff, Adam, is because I am. Like, I'm figuring it out. I'm getting to more. I, I move slowly towards a level of autonomy, right? 
where I get the confidence that you already have and I know the solutions that you may already know. Um, so when things do go wrong, that I just understand how to take care of them. That's, that's, that's what I would prefer. And that's why it's like not a, like I said, it's not a technical issue with the process or the solution or anything. It's just a kind of an institutional thing that takes time to fix mm. because I, I don't love infrastructure and management of those things, but I do enjoy them enough that like to keep things simple and to, and to, to have us focusing more on what we love to do, which is really producing content and creation around, uh, around software development and enriching the lives of developers, I would just, I just want to get the confidence that you have. And I think over time that just happens for me. So yeah, that's what I want. Um, Mm -hmm. and if I don't want to do that, then I do, I, you know, oftentimes for my clients, I just have them set up on Heroku because that way they don't rely upon me to play that role that I'm currently relying upon for you. It's just like, Mm -hmm. I'm stuck. Help me. Um, so it's great in that sense, but for us, I love that we can have so much control and so much, you know, have our get our hands dirty with regards to how we run everything. That'd be an interesting conversation to earmark, Jared. Is the the developer experience aspect of like Kubernetes or the Gerhardt way, which uh, the Gerhardt way, which he did for us, or you know something like Heroku, which obviously they're all sort of different workflows for different mm-hmm. types of applications and like where the pros and cons lie. Yeah. Well, I think we're hitting up against our time here, Gerhard. This was a great conversation. Of course, maybe we didn't say it, but thank you so much for everything that you've done for us and with us. Uh, It's been, uh, it's been a heck of a ride and I'm glad that we've made a new friend out of it. Uh, in fact, uh, I got to visit Gerhard in London when we were over there for OSCON. So got to go to the pivotal offices and play some ping pong with him, show him (laughs) how, show him how to play ping pong. Uh, <laughs> I remember it differently. I remember it differently, but go on. You're the guest. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. You're the host. I'm the guest, yeah, I'm, so we'll just right. go with it. That's right. It's our show, so we can just say what we want. Um, and so, yeah, just from from us and from the changelog, thank you so much for everything that you've done. It's it's really awesome. Any any last thoughts from you on this or uh, key takeaways or anything you'd like to say before we close up? I've enjoyed it more than you think. So I got a kick out of it because I got to help you and I got to see, validate some of my ideas and some assumptions which I had. Um, As a key takeaway to our listeners, I would say always, always focus on what you're trying to achieve. That would mean knowing what you're trying to achieve and do not focus on the technology and don't focus on your tools because they're a means to an end. Right? They're not the end in itself. You have to know them and you have to love them, but they're just you know, there to help you. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well, Gerhard, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all you do for the open source community. And especially thank you for what you've done for us here at ChangeLog. It's been awesome working with you. And thanks for coming on the show today, man. It was my pleasure. Have a good one, everyone. I'm sure I was ranting for a while, especially when I go like into the woods. Just, just cut that stuff. Just honestly. <laughs> All right, thank you for tuning into the Change Log, and also thanks to our sponsors who make the show possible: Century, Hired, and also Microsoft with their Azure Open Dev Conference. 
Also, thanks to Fast, they are bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode servers. Check them out, linode.com slash changelog. You can find more episodes like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.